morning. It's really good to be with you. Um, happy Labor Day. I mean, it's Labor Day weekend, right? Everybody loves Labor Day. And, and you know, I got to be honest with you, there's, there's a lot of good things about preaching on Labor Day, Labor Day weekend. You know, maybe it's a little lower, you know, people are out of town. That's okay, because everybody is smiling, because even if this is awful, you're off tomorrow, right? So if we can just like, if we can just get through this next hour, it's like, dude, the weekend has just begun. Um, so honestly, happy, happy Labor Day from New City Church. We're glad that you made it with us today. Um, now let me ask you this before we start. What is the greatest thing about vacation? Like think about the, the best vacation that you ever took. What was the greatest thing about it? You know, speaking, of, speaking about voca- vacations, Literally a year ago today, I was on a plane to Fort Lauderdale to catch a cruise with Emily, my wife, and my parents went with us. The good thing about taking your parents is they pay for the the plane tickets. Um, (laughs) But literally... That sounds fun. That's happening. Did I just come through? Was I? Okay. I'm the same volume to me, so yeah, just raise a hand next time that happens. Um, but you do things on a cruise ship that you would never do in real life. And honestly, not just the shows that you go see and, and all those cool things, but the food, right? It's like, are you sure you want a third dessert? Yeah, I'm sure. I paid $3,000 for this thing. I will eat whatever I want. And so honestly, in vacation mode, you know, hashtag vacation mode, that's what everybody says, literally the answer to everything is because I can. Like, that's why I'm going to see ice skating, because I can, because we're on a cruise ship. And, and guys, I know that we don't take cruises often, at least I don't, but I have found something very similar to vacation mode in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's on Strickland Road. There's this place where for $15 a person, you know where I'm going. <laughs> see, we're in vacation mode, hashtag vacation mode, right? For $15 a person, a shrimp. Sushi comes by you on this conveyor belt. Everybody's like, oh yeah. And you're thinking, $15? That's gross. No, the sushi is good and it is all you can eat. You don't like sushi? Order a hibachi plate. Those are included. Get the desserts if you want them. Miso soup? That's up front. It's literally whatever you like. And so, this just happened to us. I just want to throw a picture up there that says, because I can, okay? This was... The epitome of because I can is found in this picture. Who knows what the iPhone camera did not capture, but as you can see, you didn't like that sushi? Don't worry, baby. It's whatever you like. Don't eat it. You didn't like that dessert? That's okay. Let's get another one. Crab ragoons on the house. You can have whatever you like. And why do we eat that much? (laughs) Because I can. That's what I say. Because I can. And so I want to begin today thinking about that. Because I can. You know, we kind of laugh at that, and that's funny. And the reality is, I eat more than I ever should there just because I can. But I want to ask this question as we begin. What influences your decision-making? What influences your decision-making? I mean, because I think we can agree it's funny on a cruise ship or at a sushi restaurant to make a decision just because we can, like we're going to eat our money's worth. Without diving into examples, think about if we live the rest of life this way. That what if I did everything in life, important, unimportant, sushi, or marriage, just because I could? We're diving back into a series called Masterclass today where we've been walking through 
the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we find ourselves in, in, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. And this is the great thing about what I believe Paul is trying to get us to see here in 1 Corinthians, and we call it Masterclass for this reason. The gospel is looking to shape every area of our life. Like, we read some books, and, you know, take Romans, for example. Paul, the same guy that wrote 1 Corinthians, wrote the book of Romans. And you can read every chapter and just be captivated by the glory of God. Like, it is so deep when it comes to God. It talks about how we're sinful. It talks about how God is redeeming us. It talks about what awaits us, that nothing can tear us apart from God, and we're captivated. And then sometimes we get to a letter such as 1 Corinthians, and we're like, God, those people are screwed up. Like, these people have serious issues. And so we are diving back into this because despite all the issues that the Corinthians may have, in humility, we look at our own lives and say, man, this book is super valuable to me because me, Adam, I'm more screwed up than I could ever imagine. And so God is looking to do something in this. And he's looking to tell us, look, every part of me flows into every area of your life. And today we're going to be finishing up chapter 10, looking at this topic of decision-making. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, if you don't have a Bible, there is a black one somewhere around you. And if you don't even own a Bible, take that black one home. That is our gift to you. But if you are in our black Bible, it is page 1017, finishing it up. And so let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. Paul says this, Everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. He repeats himself. But not everything builds up. Verse 24. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Now let's just pause there, because right there, that could preach a sermon in itself, okay? Everything is permissible. He puts that in quotation. But not everything builds up. And then he reiterates, everything is permissible, but not everything is good. If you remember a few weeks ago, which probably a few months ago, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul was talking about this topic of sexual immorality, things that were going on inside the church that shouldn't be going on, he used this verbiage as well, where he said, everything is permissible, but not everything is okay. And here he seems to be repeating himself, because what's probably going on, just like the discussion with sexual immorality, the Corinthians have been using this phrase and basically equating that to, because I can why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah, it might be wrong, but there's grace. There's freedom. If, if your Bible's like mine, I'm sure the headline uh, above verse 23 is Christian liberty or Christian freedom, right? That there's this brand new faith. A few years after this guy named Jesus had come and he had died and he had resurrected, and we have the early church. And they're walking through this life. What does it look like to have freedom in Christ but not make every decision just because I can? In a culture that is all about sex, in a culture that is all about idolatry, what does it look like for us to walk counterculturally? And so here Paul is addressing these issues that might have come up. Ultimately, we don't have the initial reach out of the Corinthians. We don't know exactly every verse why Paul is saying what he's saying because we don't have that background. And it's not really a conversation, it's just Paul's response. But nevertheless, this is probably being taken out of context and they're using this for their own pleasure. But ultimately, and this is why, this is the cool thing about the Bible. It was written thousands of years ago, but as I read that, those first verses, I'm like, man, that's me. Like, sometimes I can get caught up in old Baptist pe preachers would sometimes call salvation your get-out-of-hell-free card. Like, that's what faith is not. Like, it's not Jesus has saved me so I can do whatever I want. And it's funny that thousands of years later, I'm still dealing with the same thing that this audience is. 
And so nevertheless, Paul is saying, look, here is how you begin to make decisions. It's kind of like a scale if you want to think about it that way. Everything is permissible, seemingly, right? But not everything is right. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. And then he just tacks on in verse 24, you know what? If you don't know what you're supposed to do, just throw this on for size. Do whatever is better for the other person and not yourself. You don't know if your decision is right, even though we, we could do it, and it might not build up. This is the tagline. Whatever is good for the other person, do that, you're probably safe. And that just wasn't the culture of the Corinthians here. And you know what's very fascinating? It says that we dive into this. This might be a dumb moment, but I believe this is what Paul would have us know, and that's this, that every day you are faced with decisions. Like, as we read these verses, you're probably like, yeah, no, duh, I make decisions every day. I woke up. Well, that's not your decision, I guess. Um, you brushed your teeth, hopefully. That was your decision. It's Labor Day weekend, but you came to church. That was your decision. And you're like, well, yeah, I, I get it. Every day we're faced with decisions. That was really good exegesis right there. But did you know that you're faced with around 35,000 decisions every day? I don't know if some of you count them. Because did you know, and this is a little bit easier to track, you make 226.7 decisions about food every single day. Now, on Sunday mornings, because some of you are like, I don't know, I think I think more than that, you know, about food. On Sunday mornings, because I've heard some of you in the lobby, that probably bumps up to about 600 decisions of where we're going to go eat. Um, and so, you know, your numbers could look different depending on the day of the week. But there are decisions to be made, and every day you are faced with decisions. But you know what's very interesting about decision-making? Different people make decisions in different ways, right? And maybe you can relate to this. Me and Emily, let's take me and my wife, for example. She, when making decisions, very slow, very methodical, very um, analyzing everything. Me, I just kind of go with whatever feels good. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's just like, let's, let's, just, let's make this an example. I got to buy a shirt, okay? I'm going to walk into Old Navy or Target. I'm going to see a shirt I like. Do they have my size? Great. Let's walk out. Self-checkout. I'm in in three minutes. Emily sees a shirt she likes and then analyzes the pattern. She analyzes the climate in which she lives in. Would this work? She asks my opinion. We have to go try it on. When going to a restaurant, Adam will order the same thing every time. Shout out a restaurant right now, and I can tell you my order. Just kidding, don't do that. But literally, I will not choose something different at a restaurant. I know my go-to. Emily will peruse the menu, order a water, order something she's never had, not like it, not eat it. <laughs> so there's very difference in opinions and personalities when making decisions. And before you think I'm picking on Emily, when it comes to our budget, Adam... Five easy payments of $99.99, that is a steal. <laughs> Emily, we have a budget. What are you doing? We're not doing this. Our Acts 29 assessment, we're currently in the process of applying to Acts 29, who is our church planning network, and there is an extensive application that took about two months. Emily had a part to do hers, and I had probably, you know, as the, uh, the lead guy, I guess there's about 12 sections I have to do, and then there's a wife questionnaire. I did my 12 sections in the same time that she did hers. But here's the thing. Hers, when I read hers, I'm like, this is good. Like, can you write my part? 
And so before you think I'm picking on Emily, God is just a gracious God in giving us two different personalities within our household. Because yes, I would be like shopping network central, eating fast food, doing all that stuff. But Emily is a little bit slower to allow me to do that. And luckily, our marriage works that way. And so every day you are faced with decisions. And while they they may come across differently, the way that you choose what you choose, nevertheless, there are 35,000 decisions that roughly you're going to make a day. And so why do we need to know that every day we are faced with decisions? And it's simply this, because your decisions matter. Once again, duh, right? Your decisions matter. And sometimes I think we forget this, or maybe that's just me. I can think back to before me and Emily were married. We were seniors in college and we were engaged. And I was working a part-time youth pastor job at a, a small Baptist church in Boiling Springs, North Carolina. It was great. And I remember her asking me a few months before graduation, are you saving for marriage? I looked at her as if she had two heads. No, I'm not saving for, like, I told her verbatim, I will save when we get married. That didn't happen. Once again, five easy payments of $99.99. But nevertheless, I was oblivious to the fact that the decisions I made then would affect my marriage later. And maybe that's a silly example, and it's like, you know, that was just, you can blame the immaturity of a 21-year-old. But what do you think about when you hear these last few weeks about community groups starting back? Is there any temptation for that little voice in the back of your head to pop up and say, you're really too busy? You don't have time to put something else on your plate. There's food you might have to cook. You you don't have time for that. The reality is when it comes to community groups, we, we harp on them, if you will, so much, is as Dylan, our pastor, just said, loneliness and depression are huge in our culture today. And it's very easy for us to think, man, if I don't join a community group or if I don't go to a community group, no one's going to miss me. What does it matter? But the reality is, is even that small decision of joining a community group matters. You being there means that we get to hear what you took away from the sermon. You being there is community and maybe that shoulder for someone else in the group who is hurting. You being there takes cooking a meal off the shoulders of another couple in the group. It matters that you're there, and that's why we push community groups, because we cannot do life alone. And so your decisions matter. And if you hear that little voice, I would also plead with you with this, that one of the schemes of the enemy is telling us that our decisions only affect us, that the decisions you make only affect you. And we know this is true. Think about addiction, whatever that looks like. I believe one of the lies for someone trapped in addiction, whether it be drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever it is, is the lie that this only affects you. Why are they so upset? But we know that's just not the case. That the decisions we make affect the other person, and that's just the reality of it. And so with your decisions matter, I would add that your decisions don't just affect you. They never have, and they never will. And it's not just big decisions like addiction. That's an obvious example. It's not just that. But it's even small. Every day, meaningly, like, what does this matter examples? And luckily, once again, the graciousness of God in his Bible, he does not give us a code to figure out, but he literally gives us everyday examples for us to put ourselves in. And so let's continue reading in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 25. So think about this as we read verse 25, this this whole everything is permissible, but not everything might be good. 
He says this, eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, you know what, this food is from a sacrifice, don't eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is it that my freedom is judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something in which I give thanks? And maybe if you haven't asked this question yet, today's probably a good time to ask, we, like, why are you so stuck on eating meat, Paul? Like, why is, you know, once again, think back to Romans, deep theological, Jesus, 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 glory, glory, glory. And now it's like, eh, eat the meat, but don't eat the meat, but eat it in this. Like, why are you so caught up on this? And guys, honestly, we've kind of lost this a little bit in our translation of our modern day context, just because eating together isn't something we do all the time, but eating together was a huge part of their culture. And so here Paul is going to give two scenarios, okay? And one kind of plays off the other. And the first thing he says is this, if you look back is go to the market and buy your meat there. Go to the market, buy your meat, you don't have to pray about it. And why does he have to say that? Well, if you think back, once again, to what Paul is saying a few weeks ago, our do was don't eat the meat, because Paul had concluded that if I eat meat that causes my brother to stumble, whether it be Jew or Gentile, I'm not going to eat it. And so some Christians may be thinking, well, you know what? I'm not even going to go to the market and buy meat that could be sacrificed to idols. Because if you remember back a few weeks, that's where the meat markets were. Normally, they were beside the temples for convenience. You'd buy the meat, sacrifice it, eat it. And so some of the Christians were, were thinking, you know what? I think I'm better off if I just don't engage the market. And I think if Paul was to write our, our, you know, this letter today in modern day example, he would simply say this, don't be weird and judgmental. Be like everybody else. Go to the market. And it's very easy sometimes in our Christian culture today that the minute we see something that we're against, we have to go to Facebook. We have to go to Facebook, and we have to get it out there that we are against that. Look how Christian I am that I have to let you know that I'm against this. And simply put, Paul is saying, look, dude, go to the market. Live a quiet, simple life. Don't compromise, but certainly it's okay. Go buy meat at the market and that flows perfectly into the second thing that he would say if you look back down at the text. He simply says, hey, if you're going to go over to someone's house, if someone invites you and you want to go, go ahead and eat everything that is before you without raising question. And I would just throw a side note in here that if you're not going to the market and being normal, you're probably not being invited to a non-believer's home. I mean, think about a modern example. We were at the pool a few weeks ago, and these two little girls run up to one mother who brings over another mother, and they meet. And the moms are talking, and they're exchanging phone numbers, and they're going to do a play date. But that's not happening if you're not going to the market. And so Paul is just expecting, look, you're going to be invited to a non-believer's home because you are engaging the people in the market. And so here's what he says. When you're going over to a home, when the plate is set before you, eat without question. And guys, let me just be real for you, real with you for a second. If there was one command in Scripture that I will always break, it will be this one. If I'm in your community group and you put something before me that I don't like, I will not eat it. <laughs> I will question it. I promise you. 
You're laughing, but I'm serious. <laughs> oh, gosh, this was really traumatic, so I'll try to get through it. Probably about a year ago, um, I was in a community group with um, lovely people of New City Church, and uh, <laughs> Brian Androsian, who's on staff here, was in my community group, and it was his time to bring dinner. And, you know, Brian has sometimes brought weird stuff like shepherd's pie. It's weird. <laughs> but for dessert, um, he had blueberry pie. And, you know, I was thinking, blueberry's not my favorite, but I'll eat it. I'm a good Christian. Eat without question. <laughs> and, guys, I was expecting, you know, the good stuff, the, the, the fake flaky crust, the, the blueberry goop, and then, like, little fragments of blueberry that's been frozen. You know, the good stuff. <laughs> Brian spends all day baking this pie that has whole blueberries in this vanilla glaze. No one looks disgusted. <laughs> Do you think I ate it? Heck no. Do you think I told him how much it was disgusting? Heck yes. I will not eat without question. And before you're like, man, you're a jerk. I learned my lesson, okay? In Thailand in college, it was a long day and we had come back to a church in Renong, Thailand, and the ladies had, had, had made this awesome meal for us, and it looked like chicken stew, and I was so excited. We had these long tables in the, in, the, in the church auditorium and the pastors, and we were all eating together, and I got a big bowl of chicken stew. And the first bite, I'm like, a little crunchy, but it's okay. Like, I get it. Eat without question. Good Christian. And I, I, I keep eating. I get through about half of the bowl, and I realize that in Thailand, you just cut up the whole chicken. You're not taking chicken off the bone. So then I realize, you're crunching through vertebrae. I look over to my buddy Wesley, who's sitting right beside me, and we're kind of having the same thought, like, we're not going to say anything, because that's disrespectful. Well, they would, I mean, they speak Thai anyways. They probably wouldn't understand this American is, like, throwing up on their table, so we're like a moment of panic. But then I see across the table, probably three guys down from me, they're talking and they're politely pulling bones out of their mouth, shoving them in a napkin, and they keep talking. <laughs> I've been eating this entire chicken, crunching through neck and leg and whatever else, and I had no idea that if you just politely pull a bone out of your mouth and put it in a napkin, you're all good. That's what I get for eating without question, Okay. <laughs> I learned my lesson. Never again will I do it. And wherever Brian's at, keeping the building safe, your pie is still disgusting, and I will continue to tell people that. But guys, in all seriousness, eating together was a huge part of culture there. Eating together, sharing a meal around the table was a huge part of culture. And for a minute, I just want you to think about, throughout the Bible, think about some of the conversations around eating together. What took place? What letters we have? What gospels we have? What do they say about that? You know, it's ironic that one of the things that Jesus was criti criticized for was what? Eating with sinners. After he would call his disciples, for example, after he called Levi, Levi threw a huge banquet, and there was other tax collectors there. There was other sinners there. And Jesus stayed and feasted with them. And the Pharisees looked at Jesus, and they say, how could he eat with sinners? If he knew who they were, surely he wouldn't eat with them. And in the ironic sense of Jesus, what is the condemnation of the Pharisees? That when the Pharisees are at the feast and they're eating dinner, they have the best seat at the table. And then all of this flows into one big 
welcoming, gracious kingdom where God says, come sit at my table, and he saves a seat for those who never got one on earth. Eating together was a huge part of the culture, and Jesus engaged the culture. Maybe the most famous dinner we have in the Bible is before Jesus was to die. And scholar N.T. Wright makes the note that when Jesus was to tell his disciples about his forthcoming death, (laughs) he didn't give them a formula or a theory. He gave them a meal. There is something that happens when we sit around the table with each other. No longer is food about fuel or sustenance, but it is about relationship and connection. And so why is Paul so caught up on eating with non-believers? Because if you are a part of culture, this is what is happening. And one guy even said it like this, that table fellowship is a lost spiritual discipline for the modern-day Christian. That along with prayer and fasting and all the other disciplines that we think about, table fellowship is perhaps one of the long lost. We just don't do it anymore. But nevertheless, Paul is giving us an example of what this would look like. Paul understood that many gospel conversations and many gospel conversions happened around the table. So much more than dinner, guys. And that's where we land as we begin to close 1 Corinthians, reading in verse 31. So whether, man, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I, Paul, also try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit but the benefit of many so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ, is chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. Simply put, there is nothing in your life that does not have gospel implications. There's nothing you can do, small like eating or drinking, or even the big stuff, which Paul is like, fill in the blank. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so what must we do with this? Simply put, we have to allow the gospel to shape our decisions. Allow the gospel to shape our decisions. Will we engage culture or will we retract? Will we invite non-believers over to our house or will we even accept their invitation over to theirs? Will we engage this culture? Look back at verse 32 and 33. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also try to to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, and don't miss this, so that they may be saved. So that they may be saved. Is this our attitude? And if it is, we will allow the gospel to shape our decisions, and here's ultimately why. When the gospel shapes our decisions, decisions no longer revolve around us. When the gospel shapes our decisions, decisions no longer revolve around us. We are not God, obviously. We do not have the power to save anybody, no matter who home you're in. But here is what we know. That God, in his grace, has invited us to play part in seeing people destined for hell meet the king of heaven. And unfortunately, 
the church has sometimes squandered this. A few weeks ago, Dylan mentioned this Twitter thread that he came across where someone asked, used to be a follower of Jesus, and, and now he's not, and he simply asked, he put the question on Twitter, why did you leave the faith? It was a discussion panel for those who had left the faith. I want to throw some of those tweets up. These are real people and their real answers to why they left the faith. Here's the first one. The institution is self-congratulating, abusive, and more interested in keeping the donors happy than following Jesus. The next one. Intuition and continuous abuse, like a song leader who yelled at me because I didn't raise my hands. Lack of love and abundance of hate towards other churches. And, you know, they add, an elder said from the pulpit that my leaving was God getting rid of the riffraff. I am now proud to be a riffraff. And then the third one. I wasn't in the leadership clique, but I was in leadership. Not one person from my team visited or helped me when I had breast cancer. That was the last of many straws. I could never be good enough for them, so how could I be good enough for God? In my experience, and there was many more um, answers. Not one of them said I had an issue with Jesus. But all of them, whether they were valid or not, that's, that's not the sake of the argument, said the people who claim Jesus really hurt me. You don't think our decisions matter? May it not be said of us. <laughs> you want someone to reject Christianity? Let them see me be a jerk to my wife one time. Let them see that. They don't need my theology. They need to see my actions that don't reflect that. And, and that's what Paul is, is starting us with. Look, do what is good for others. This isn't good for others. And so I know that's probably heavy, but here's the good news, that just as the church has squandered some, man, the church has gotten it right. And if you're a believer in here today, I bet that you can think about someone who helped influence your faith, someone who showed you what it looked to be a, a man of God, a woman of God. I remember a guy that, that, that probably spent more money on my food in high school than he did his own family's, taking me to dinner, pouring into me. And as much as we get this wrong, we have the opportunity to get it right. And maybe after hearing all that, you think, dang, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> like, my decisions could have, you know, this kind of impact? I believe this is the essence of our Christian liberty. I believe that's why modern English translators put this little footnote in the Bible, or not footnote, but heading, that says, this is what Christian liberty is all about. That it moves from responsibility to pleasure. That my Christian liberty is that I can give my life away for the sake of the gospel. That it is not mere responsibility that is too much to handle, but it is pleasure that I gladly take on. And this next part is truly theological, and it's what I call the CFA response. The Chick-fil-A response. Raise your hand if you've had one bad experience at Chick-fil-A. That's what I thought. <laughs> Even on your worst day at Chick-fil-A, it is so great. You need more sauces, Mr. Pickard? My pleasure. You want a refill? My pleasure. The song says you don't even have to bless your food. We already prayed for you. 
My pleasure. I know that's silly, but in all honesty, that is what I thought about when I thought of pleasure. What is it about Chick-fil-A that makes us want to go there? It's food. But there's something about the environment where it's like, yeah, I want to spend my money there. I really love the food, but I love the environment as well. And so, like I said, super theological, but to this call in 1 Corinthians, do you have the CFA response? Hey, guys, if Jesus is our pleasure, you will begin to do this. You will begin to think of others, and you just can't help yourself. And all of this begins as we look back at verse 11 slash 1, and this is where we will close. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Paul's saying, look, none of this begins with me. There's nothing in myself that can muster up enough love to put someone else before myself. I'm a selfish person. But look, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And as we think about decisions, it all begins with Christ. I mean, just think about this for a second. Jesus' title before the world was formed was slain. Now, yes, he is king. He has always been. He is not created. But the Bible tells us that before the world was formed, he was destined to be slain. And as we think about John 3.16, maybe the most well-known verse in this room, God so, loved his world, God so loved the world that he gave. God, having you in mind, made a conscious decision to send his son to earth. Jesus, being a boy, made the conscious decision to go in the Father's house, to be in the temple, to learn the scriptures. Jesus, as a boy, made the conscious decision to honor his father and mother. Jesus made the conscious decision to go through Samaria, not around it because he was meeting a woman at that well. Jesus made the conscious decision to call certain men to follow him. And ultimately, Jesus made the conscious decision that I'm going to die because I was sent here for that. This is where it begins. It begins with the imitation of Jesus that he does everything with others in mind. And our bottom line is simply this, that our daily decisions can have an eternal impact. Our daily decisions, think about Jesus' daily decisions. You know what, I'm going to call Peter today. Eternal impact. I'm going to go through some area so that I can meet that woman at the well who has seven husbands. Eternal impact. And I would add to our bottom line that not only will they impact others, but they can impact you. Following Christ is a daily decision. Maybe it's a decision that you've never made. And so whose eternity can be impacted from that very initial decision to follow Jesus? Yours. Your eternity is impacted. And from there, Jesus transforms us. And every decision from that one is with this in mind that, Lord, may I have an eternal impact that is for the kingdom. This is our good pleasure. This is our good purpose, guys. And I started this message off with, oh, you know, simply the sushi restaurant and cruise ships. And we came to this conclusion. Why do we do what we do when we're in a sushi restaurant and a cruise ship? Because we can. Guys, why do we love? Because we can. Why do we serve Sundays at New City? Because we can. 
Why do we play in the band? Why do we lead on staff? God, graciously, because I can. And ultimately, how do we follow Jesus? Why do we follow Jesus? In what way do we follow Jesus? And it's from this attitude that, God, because of you, I can. That's it. And so for those who are in this room today, what could you do? What could you do just because you can? I can join a community group just because I can. I can serve just because I can. I can come to a Thursday night service just because I can. This is the essence of our Christian liberty, to give our lives away for whatever the sake of the gospel is. Our daily decisions, every little decision, like going to a sushi restaurant and who you're going to share a table with, can have eternal impact. Let's pray.